Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. My guest this week is Jeff Chang. Jeff is a journalist and music critic. When he was in college, he co-founded the influential hip-hop label Soul Sides. He went on to write some of the most important work about the culture and history of hip-hop. His latest project, We Gonna Be All Right, is a little bit different. It started as a book in 2016. He wanted to talk about racism in America today. Big topics like racial segregation in housing, entertainment, and education. It's back now as a four-part video series on YouTube by Indie Lens Spotlight. And a lot has changed in the last few years. The show deals with some really tough questions that have no easy answers. The current state of racism since Trump became president, where Asian Americans fall when it comes to discrimination, how bigotry plays out, even within races. Here's a clip from the series. Activist Linda Sarsour talks about what it means to be a Muslim woman from Brooklyn, where she's not quite part of the usual black or white divide that you hear about. Intersectionality is not about black, white, Asian American, Arab American women organizing together. The idea of intersectionality is organizing at the intersections of oppression. That if you want to address sexism and misogyny, you also have to address anti-black racism and xenophobia and all the kind of isms and phobias that are out there that you can't kind of take down one branch of racism off the larger tree. Solidarity is a verb. Solidarity for me is to be for and with the most marginalized people at the time that they need you most. And that for you to give whatever talent, whatever resources you have to those most marginalized people. Our survival is based on our solidarity. Jeff Chang, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to talk to you again. Hey, Jesse. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> you sound sad, Jeff. I No, I'm not sad at all. I'm I'm happy. <laughs> I'm very happy. How do you feel generally? It's been a few years since the book that this video series is based on came out, and it's been an eventful few years <laughs> for race <laughs> in America, particularly. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, well, first thing to say is I wrote and got this book published before the elections in 2016. Therefore, the title. And and yes, so much has happened that we've gone back and made this digital series to kind of catch up on all of that that's happened. What do you think is different about the politics and structures of race in the United States now than it was 15 or 20 years ago when the hip hop generation started to gain some power? We can even talk about this from five years ago, right? Uh, from from before August 9th, 2014. You know what I mean? And up till now, there's a huge difference. There's a huge change. There's a consciousness, I think, that has leveled everybody up. And it's caused a massive, massive backlash culturally and politically to the point where you know, you have white nationalists all around the world worried about, quote unquote, being replaced, like replaced with what? Replaced with who? You know, like the this whole idea of being replaced is it's not just an ideology of hate. It's a projection of hate that it's as if there can be no other way to be in the world but to rule and dominate people. And I think that that's that's unbelievable. But on the other hand, it's leveled everybody up in terms of being able to think about the question of race 
and you know, gee, almost at the right time, right? Like we're we're literally uh, in 2023. Everybody under the age of 18 is going to be part of a of a, you know a cohort that's majority minority. What does that even mean? And in 2042, 2043, the rest of the country is going to cross that threshold. So you know, we're way past too late. We've needed a late pass around questions of racial justice to go back and quote PE. But I think that that there's a consciousness now that was not there. And and that makes me actually optimistic, even in the face of all the chaos uh, that's occurring right now, in the face of all the division and polarization and violence and hatred that's uh, that's out right now. And I think that we're possibly in the the birthing pains of something brand new, something um, wonderful, something that can't yet be imagined. What do you think that new thing might be? I don't know. You know, I, I think it's, hopefully it's going to be a country in a world that's more focused on equity and racial justice. Um, it's a world in which we figure out how to close the gaps of inequity, because we really have to get to the big question, which is how are we all uh, going to be able to survive on this planet together? And then to do that, we have to answer the question of how we're going to live together first. And that's really what the impetus was for this small book in 2016, you know, We Gonna Be All Right, was to, to talk about the fact that we have found ourselves or find ourselves now in a place where the country has resegregated quietly and sometimes imperceptibly, but drastically, uh, where we've gone back more than 50 years in history, uh, where we're more separate and more unequal than we were before when I was coming of age, you know, with Public Enemy and Boogie Down Productions and uh, Light and Latifah and everybody. We're more separate and unequal in this generation than we were in my generation. And that's something that we have to face head on. And I think that that's what I have and many other people have been kind of thinking into, writing into, um, making movies into, making music into, and the time couldn't be better than now. Let's talk about what resegregation means, because that is an important idea for you and an important idea in your book and in the show. But I don't think it's one that explains itself immediately. I think we know what desegregation meant in the context of you know, history, in the context of the civil rights movement primarily you know, the 1960s and early 1970s, I guess. In what way specifically is, is America becoming more segregated or resegregating? Well, segregated, continuing to be segregated. There are places that never desegregated. And resegregated in the sense of we are more divided by race and class than we've been um, in decades. You know, if you look at the schools now, the public schools... Something like upwards of 80% of black students and 75% of Latinx students go attend majority-minority schools. And the average white lives in a neighborhood that's 75% white. And this, despite the fact that we're becoming more and more diverse culturally and racially every single day um, in places like California and Florida and Maryland and even Kansas, right? We see this as a reality every single day. And you would think that that would mean that we'd 
found a way to to live closer together. But the reality is, is that the flashpoints that we've seen for uprisings over the last five, 10 years have largely been in colorized suburbs, have been in suburbs uh, in which folks of color have been forced to move out of the city uh, into these uh, decaying suburbs, um, places like Ferguson, Missouri, places like Sanford, Florida. And at the same time, you know, there's been, as we know here in the Bay Area so well, massive gentrification and displacement happening in these cities. And so it's hard, I think, not to get a sense walking down the street for somebody like me who's lived in the Bay Area for, you know, over three decades now to to feel a sense of disconnection, to feel not just a sense of loss, but a sense of disconnection, what, uh, what's been called root shock. And that's very, very real. And what I try to say is that it's not just about gentrification. It's not just about the money that's moving into the cities. It's about the people who are displaced and forced to move further and further out. So I've talked to people for this book and for the series who are forced out of Silicon Valley and are commuting from the Central Valley two hours away, two and a half hours away, three hours away, four hours away sometimes uh, to try to come to work during the week at Stanford University. It's, it's all interconnected, and that's why I say resegregation is the problem, and gentrification is just a little aspect of, of this larger problem of resegregation. Let's hear a clip from my guest Jeff Chang's new web series, uh, which is called We Gonna Be All Right, and it's based on his book of essays of the same name. This is a conversation between Jeff and a guy called Isaiah Phillips, who lives and was raised in East Palo Alto, uh, which is a, a small city in Silicon Valley next to Palo Alto, the home of Stanford University. And as you illustrate in the show, essentially halfway in between Facebook and Google's Silicon Valley campuses. And it's historically lower middle class community. And it's one where in the past few years, the average home price has more than tripled. Let's take a listen. It's hard to think of East Palo Alto as fully the home that I used to think of it as. I think of it now as like, you know, the place that has made me to be who I am. People might say like, if you don't feel like ownership of this place, like, why don't you just leave? Oh, since you don't feel ownership, bro, just leave. Like that, that is the story of American colonialization. What does community, what does that word mean for you? It is multiple people in a space that can look at each other and say, I want you to succeed, and I want you to succeed, and I want you to be safe, and I see that you're homeless, and I want you to have a home. I have to say, when I watched that episode, which is the first of the series, I was sitting at my home office, you know, looking at my computer monitor, and I almost started crying because I so deeply related to the feeling that he described of losing the physical sense of home. And, you know, you live and have lived for decades now in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is, 
you know, ground zero for the ways that cities in particular have changed in this country in the last couple of decades. How have you experienced that change from your vantage point in the in the East Bay? I mean, you're talking to me from from Berkeley, California right now. It's something that's on everybody's lips all the time. You know, we talk about it all the time. And it's always with this sort of, you have to stop the conversation before it goes too far, because otherwise you start feeling this sense of profound sadness. And this is, this is the feeling that has been described as root shock, this idea of all of, all of it's not just the material things, right? It's not just the, the barbershop on the corner, and it's not just the, you know, the Trinidadian food spot that was there. Or the old, you know, record store being gone, that kind of thing. It's all of that combined with this idea of networks of friends and families and people being ripped apart. And, you know, at the local church of mine, you know, people still come in on Sundays and they drive in from an hour, an hour and a half away because that's the community that they came up with. They can't afford to live there anymore. We talked to one amazing young organizer, Tamika Bennett in East Palo Alto, whose family had been in in East Palo Alto for generations. And she came up as somebody who was brought into this really rich culture of activism and art making in East Palo Alto. And Tamika and her family were, were forced out by foreclosure. And so she moved to East Oakland, but she had continued to come to work for the community organization that she'd been with for 10, 15 years, right? Because she still felt it important to try to fight for that community, her community, her network of people. And that's, you know, I think that's the, that's the hardest part of, of it all. I, I don't want to, I want to talk about that side, but I also want to to mention on the other side, right? And and Isaiah does this as well, right? We don't blame people for wanting to move in. I wanted to move here when I was young. I really wanted to be here. And I, I know a lot of people really want to be here. It's just the pace of change and and the sense of a lack of leadership, right? Amongst politicians and civic leaders and business people to address a problem whereby our how our homeless rates, our house houseless rates are growing by 10, 20, 30, 40% year to year. And people who have been here, who we thought would be here forever, they're gone, you know? How do we balance change with keeping people in place? How do we find a way to be able to see each other's humanity and to be able to reach out to each other uh, around those kinds of things? I think a lot of people are doing really, really good work. For instance, Tamika's organization has worked to have Facebook commit $20 million to building affordable housing for all the people who want to stay. Um, But it's not enough. And so you have security guards going on strike. You have tenants, renters going on strike in East Palo Alto. And East Palo Alto is right literally in the middle of Silicon Valley. It's considered the last quote unquote affordable place in Silicon Valley. So there's a lot of pressure on this community right now. Um, And I think we're all just trying to figure out how to be all right. I'll continue my conversation with Jeff Chang in a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Babbel. If you always wanted to speak a new language, 
Whether it's for travel, work, or brain training, Babbel's 10 to 15 minute lessons will get you speaking confidently in your new language. Choose from Spanish, French, and more. You'll learn through real-life dialogues, speech recognition, and interactive trainers. And Babbel's spaced repetition method actually makes you remember what you've learned. Download the app or go to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com, to try Babbel for free. We spend millions of hours and billions of dollars on video games. But can consoles still compete with the next level of streaming and subscriber services? I'm Joshua Johnson. Subscribe to 1A on NPR as we consider the future of gaming. We are the host of My Brother, My Brother, and Me, and now, nearly 10 years into our podcast, the secret can be revealed. All the clues are in place, and the world's greatest treasure hunt can now begin. Embedded in each episode of My Brother, My Brother, and Me is a micro-clue that will lead you to 14 precious gemstones all around this big, beautiful blue world of ours. So start coming through the episodes. Uh, let's say starting at episode 101 on. Yeah, the early episodes are pretty problematic, so there's no clues in those episodes no no not at all the better ones the good ones clues ahoy listen to every episode repeatedly in sequence laugh if you must but mainly get all the great clues my brother my brother me it's an advice show kind of but a treasure hunt mainly anywhere you find podcasts or treasure maps my brother my brother me the hunt is on It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Jeff Chang. He's the author of We Gonna Be All Right. It is a book and now a web series from Indie Lens Spotlight. You can find it on YouTube. Jeff, as you mentioned, you're from Hawaii and your family is Hawaiian and Chinese American. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Asian Americans have a unique place in the racial structures of America. And and how do you feel about that if it is actually true? Well, we're the least segregated of all racial groups in the US. We're what you could call the most in between, you know, in between um wealth and poverty, in between oppression and freedom, in between black and white, in between all the different types of polarities that you want to describe, we're in between. And, you know, I I think that all of us in some ways are actually in between. And so what I was interested in in doing, I think, in in both the book and, and in this series was to try to explore this notion of what it means to to live in between. I think that we can all get into that metaphor, right, of of living in that really vast gray area between the extremes. And so the question becomes, well, how do we live? You know, where do we where do we go? Where do we choose to move in a moment like this? And what's clear is that in this moment, privilege shows up two ways. One way is in the strong bullying the weak, right? And another way that it shows up is in people not choosing to take a stand, people disengaging, people stepping back from what's actually happening and saying, I'll just wait till this battle plays out and choose the winner and be on with my thing. And so, you know, I I see Asian Americans in this place, right? In this in in this place of, well, maybe I'll just sit this one out, you know, and wake me up in ten years 
and, you know, and asked me, asked me what to do then, maybe. And I, I just, I feel like we all have to challenge each other to be able to say, no, that's not how we're going to act. We have to make our decisions on a day-to-day type of basis, our ethical and moral decisions on, on where to stand and how to move. And that if we are able to do so, that we could be, become really a, a force for turning this country around. All the folks who are in between, not just Asian Americans, everybody who feels like they live in between, in between these polarities, right? In between these stark contrasts and divides, because I think most of us are in between. There's been a lot of talk recently about the idea of merit-based immigration, which functionally means uh, financial means-based immigration. And within the broad categories of ethnicity that we tend to shorthand in the United States, like, you know, Hispanic, Latino, or, or Latinx, or Asian American, there are huge differences between groups. And I wonder what it's like for you to be a, you know, Chinese American representative of Asian America in conversations about race very frequently. And know that, you know, if you are representing Asian America, you are representing everything from an engineer who comes to Silicon Valley on an H-1B visa because they're the only person who can do a certain kind of SQL programming or whatever, and they went to an advanced college in India or China, and, you know, the child of a Cambodian refugee who's from, you know, Vallejo or something like that. What's it like to, ha- to, be, to be using these categories that are so broadly defined and do such a mediocre to poor job of describing people's lived experiences. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, you know, my my family, I can trace back at least seven generations and probably a lot more because we have Native Hawaiian blood. Obviously, we could trace a lot more than seven generations back in the islands. Uh, my genealogy tree, the tree, the family tree that I've drawn is seven generations back, right? We were there before... Hawaii was colonized by the U.S. when Hawaiian was the main language in the, in, in the islands. And that makes me much different from many of the folks whom I meet talking about these questions of Asian admissions, right, or discrimination against Asians in admissions, who grew up in San Francisco and lived in, in segregated Chinatown and were... Uh, made very aware of who they were from from the very beginning to the very end and still are. You know, the, the kind of thing that that does to one's identity, right, as opposed to me who grew up in a society that's two-thirds non-white and in which leadership, when I have all kinds of role models of folks who were of Asian, Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian ancestry around me to look up to. In all kinds of combinations, too. I mean, yeah, like- absolutely, yeah. All the in-betweens, right? You know, there's plenty of people whose ancestors were Filipino with multiple generations living in Hawaii with ancestors who are native Hawaiian, ancestors who are other kind of Pacific Islander, ancestors who are 
even, you know, ancestors who are white, ancestors who are Portuguese, you know, it's a unique situation in the United States. Yeah, it's well, it's a unique situation and it's not, you know, I mean, and to be able to come together on this under this idea of Asian American is this it's on the one hand, it's like this, like it's like this amazing fantasy, <laughs> right? Like what binds all these histories together? But also like trying to figure out how all of those things work together and we can still assert ourselves as Asian Americans is kind of a beautiful thing, you know? And it's not unlike what it means for all these different folks to come together and think of ourselves as Americans, right? So in that regard, there's a real interesting way in which how we determine who we are right and the fact that we do this together right and the fact that we we think of it as sort of a circle of care and we expand that like i'm interested in what the boundaries are that we put on that and why we place those boundaries on our circles of care and that's sort of the theme that we get to in the in the last you know episode of the digital series ultimately i am somebody who is incredibly proud to be of Chinese and native Hawaiian descent, who's incredibly proud to be, you know, called an Asian American, a Pacific Islander American. I, that's who I am. I wouldn't want anybody to, to tell me, Jeff, I don't see you as Chinese Hawaiian. I just see you for being Jeff. I'd be like, nah, I'm Jeff and I am Chinese Hawaiian. And you can have all those things at the same time if you really dig me. You know, it's, it's not about ignoring who I am. It's about recognizing all the things that I am. And, and at the same time, I think that it doesn't necessarily make sense for us to hold on to these identities as weapons and to wield them as blunt objects uh, to bludgeon each other with. I'm interested in finding where the pain and my struggles connect with the pain of, and struggles of, of other folks. I'm interested in finding where the beauty of of what I think is my identity connects with the beauty of other people and how they express their identity. And I think that that's ultimately the thing that we have to figure out, right, in this, in this century. How we're going to live together is that question. When I showed up for college in 1999, one of the first things they handed me over there at UC Santa Cruz <laughs> was a very famous American Studies essay, written by a Canadian, I believe, called mm. Unpacking the Knapsack of White Privilege. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was vaguely familiar with the idea, but only because my mom had gotten a graduate degree in Latin American studies when I was like 10 and mm. was a college humanities professor. So like it was just around the house a little bit. But it definitely felt like I was the first person ever to be told about this in an institutional setting. <laughs> now, you know, the essay had been written, I think, in the mid 80s. So it had been it had been around in academic circles for a little while. And the idea of white privilege had been engaged with for a little while in those academic circles. But if you told me now nearly 20 years ago, when I was starting college, that, oh, by the time you have, you know, a kid in elementary school, this will be a phrase that people are familiar with, like regular people who are not American studies scholars or whatever. I would have been surprised. And I still feel surprised when I hear people talking about 
whiteness and white privilege in a in a very positive way. I'm like they don't always uh, they don't always get it all the way. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, but they're like, they, they've heard the phrase before. Like even that seems like a big deal to me. Do you think yeah. that, do you think that, uh, white people in America are starting to come to the idea that maybe they have an ethnicity that has meaning in the power structures of America and that they should examine their lives a little bit on that basis? In the, in the way that people of color have been asked to by social circumstance for as long as this country has existed? Yeah. I, you know, that's, that's such an interesting question, Jesse, man. Like, I, I often wonder about that. You know, I, I think that there's a really, I'm fascinated by this idea of rootlessness, uh, R-O-O-T, not ruthlessness, <laughs> like easy e ruthless records, but like rootlessness, right? Like, always like, reaching out towards the future. Um, and I see it in like, I don't know, f- fiction by people like Rachel Cusk. You know what I mean? Like this idea of folks who are, are so attuned to moving forward and, you know, and fulfilling their ambitions that you, you lose, you know, sort of what you, um, or you give up, maybe you give up what you, what you came with. And, you know, and then on the other hand, folks who feel burdened by the past and who carry that like a, like a heavy collar around their necks as well, you know? And how do you find what's in between that? Like, how do you, how do you make an identity of that? How do, you, how do you recover yourself? How do you restore yourself? How do you build your new self uh, from that? It's part of this mythology, too, of California, isn't it? You know, like people came to California to kind of remake themselves, this idea of the frontier, uh, and that the Pacific would be the frontier in some ways. And, and so, you know, it's a, it's, it's a conundrum to me, you know, um, the, to how, to, how to think about how we make ourselves, uh, especially in a moment like this, in which there's, everything seems to be uprooted, in which there seems to be so much chaos. And so where do you, where do you plant yourself? Where do you plant your, your roots? You know, where do you, where do you sort of, what's the ground that you stand on to reach up from? And so I would, you know, I would hope that that's, that's part of the process, you know, of, of us making something new is to also reach down and, and grab into and root into something old and, and, uh, and at the same time be like reaching out to each other. We talked a lot about philosophy and ideas. What are some actions that you think are available to people that will on a human scale, make America better? Mm. Yeah, I think it's find your folks, you know, and don't be afraid to, to kind of make mistakes, but don't stop, continue with it, you know? I feel like, what was it, probably about 20 years ago now, like Bill Clinton got up at UCSD you see San Diego at the commencement. And he's like, "Hey, we're all going to have this conversation on race, everybody. Let's all let's all talk about this stuff." And then that kind of fizzled to to nothingness, right? And we never really had the conversation. We actually became acutely aware of how difficult it was to have that conversation, and the silences, uh, and how uncomfortable they were. And, and I think that, you know, what we've seen over the last decade is people saying we won't be silent anymore 
And so now, what do you do when you start talking? You know, what do you do when when action is asked for? Uh, I still think you need to come to to the table and be open, and you need to show up, as Linda Sarsour says in that last episode. And you need to show up again and again. And if it hurts, you still need to show up. But ultimately, it's the showing up that makes it possible for trust to be built and action to, to kind of happen. You know, for me, I think in terms of, I think about when I started writing, you know, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, all the way back in the day. And I would literally be following folks around for years, just following and observing and learning and speaking when spoken to. And finally, when it, when it came time to say, I'd like you to tell me your story, folks were like, okay, I can trust you now to do that. And then you carry with that the responsibility, you know, forward that you need to hold those stories, that you need to be able to, to convey them in the way that they were meant to be conveyed. Um, and you need to defend those stories and protect the stories as well. Um, and maybe that's a little bit of a metaphor of how we all... Um, you know, can can kind of be in this particular moment too. Jeff, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come be on Bullseye. Thank you so much, Jesse. Come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org, world headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week our producer Ragu saw a duck walking carefully across a crosswalk like a proper law-abiding pedestrian. Who says no one walks in Los Angeles? The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's away taking care of a beautiful new baby. So Ragu Manavalan stepped in for him this week. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And before you go, did you know Bullseye has nearly two decades of archives available to you? That's right. I started doing this show when I was 19 years old, and I am 38. There are so many great interviews in our archive. You can find them at MaximumFun.org. You can find the last few years' worth on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can also find them in your favorite podcast app. Hey, how about this? You like Curb Your Enthusiasm? How about Jeff Garland? Jeff Garland's been on the show. That guy's a delight. He plays Jeff on the show. Jeff from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Anyway, uh, that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.